and you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, tumors, evolution, and sunscreen. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Robin Cook, who will discuss concierge medicine. Also, we'll find out what a commandant is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm a PC. I'm Charles Lee. I'm a Mac. So Mac, where are all your programs? Well, they're built right in. Don't you have like thousands of developers making the best programs in the world? No, I just have Apple. (laughs) Whoa. All right, PC boy. What's going on? So do you ever get the feeling that the world is laughing at you? Well, I think it's mostly sneezing at me, (laughs) trying to get me off its surface. Well, next time you see a dog, they may actually be laughing. You know, that they had a sense of humor. So this is our animal fact, actually. The animal fact of the week. Oh my, you did blindsided me. <laughs> I didn't expect it there. So scientists have found that dogs, when they pant in a certain way, it's actually a sign of playfulness, analogous to the laughter that a human would have. I thought a lot of people thought that laughter was uh, also a sense of stress relief that comes about when surprise, for example, or anything happens that makes people relax after a particularly stressful event. Right. But for dogs, it turns out their panting is, when they're laughing, is actually different than the panting they have after they have a sternus exercise. Well, how do they know that one's different from the other? There's a wide range of frequencies that occur with the laughing uh, phenomenon. Okay, that just says that they have two different types of panting. <laughs> how do they know that a dog's happy? I presume it's when they uh, start playing with other dogs or something. <laughs> it's a signal for them to go out and play. All right, fair enough. I guess uh, <laughs> dog laughter. Okay, so some more animal stuff. Scientists have figured out how the eyes may form in various creatures. Previously, it was thought that you'd have this embryonic tube-like structure and then have these two bulges forming on the sides, which would eventually become the eyes. But new finding using fish, they've discovered that it seems the cells from the center to migrate towards where the eyes are going to form. So cell migration is actually part of the organ formation process rather than just cells differentiating on site there. Rather than uh, a group of cells at the location becoming eyes, right. they actually find their way from the main cord all the yeah. way to there. I, I guess it's the coelom or whatever they call it. Right. This was actually carried out with experiments carried out with fish, and they discovered that the cells that only manufacture the protein, Rx3, were the only ones involved with the eye formation. So this Rx3 is a marker for the eye? Expressed by the cells that migrate towards the location, the eye. And if the protein was not present, the cells wouldn't migrate, and as a result, the eyes would not develop at all. Okay, so it's one of the chemical guiding cues. Right. So this sheds a new insight into how eyes are formed. Uh, If you were wondering, I mean, (laughs) I'm laughing at it already. Maybe your dog's laughing. So this was cool stuff. It was carried out at the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, and it was reported at LiveScience.com. All right, well, sticking on the Evo-Devo theme, evolution. Evolution? Yes. I thought it was revolution. (laughs) It's the evolution revolution, my friend. Much like the dance dance revolution (laughs) of life. 
So, what does this involve? Evolution, as you know, is based on descent with modification. It does not come from superiority, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily, but this is one of the mechanisms by which new structures evolve right. in new organisms as they go along. You have perhaps a duplication of a pre-existing structure which can then be modified to suit a new need. And this actually occurs at the genetic level as well. So researchers are thinking that, in fact, duplication of a particular gene element called MGC8902 may have conferred onto humans their expanded brain capacity. A group of researchers have actually been looking, trying to do a comparative study of a bunch of genes, mm -hmm. and this one actually popped out because of the variable number of copies that appears to exist between both small primates, there's only 10 in the chimps and 4 in the macaque, uh -huh. where there's over 44 of these in the human. I'm not sure if I'm missing any of them, though. <laughs> Maybe you have an extra one. Huh. And this in particular is interesting because they find that this gene, and in particular the domain, is expressed in, among other places, the brain's neocortex. Hmm, so simply missing one of these genes may not necessarily mean you're defective. It just, I guess you can have a variable number of them uh, within a species as well, right? Uh, because a, a lot of the interactions with genes are combinatorial, yeah. maybe missing one is actually a lot worse than you would think because of the interactions it has with several genes. Right. So anyway, this is very fascinating. Probably a large group of these genes have descended from a common ancestor and now have taken on different functions mm -hmm. to establish mm -hmm. the human brain. But of course, the added cautionary note that always has to exist, Evan Eichler, a geneticist at the University of Washington, Seattle, says he would be cautious about over-extrapolating these observations to brain enlargement. So, <laughs> but there you go. Published in a recent edition of Science. So I guess that means we won't have any creams for our brain enhancing, huh? Well, all the creams I've tried to rub in there have, they've made it more shiny. <laughs> they've also made me happier. <laughs> I gotta get some of those, man. So speaking of creams, it turns out if you don't apply enough sunscreen, it may actually be more harmful than not applying them at all. But there's a more uh, chemical effect going on that's not as obvious. Several sunscreens being used these days, they actually have a tendency to penetrate into the epidermis. So when you don't have enough of the sunscreen, the actual uh, blockers enter the epidermis and they could actually be harmful. Do they interact with the cells in some deleterious way? Looks like they do. It seems to go into deep into your skin, but it could actually just damage it once it gets down there. So is this just all kinds of sunscreen? What's to be of the conventional ones that are being used these days? So scientists are concerned that we may actually need a lot better sunscreen to prevent these chemicals from actually, you know, absorbed into your uh, deeper layers. Right. So is there maybe just a way you could suspend them in some mixture so that they don't... Well, I think if you apply enough of the sunscreen, the mixture will prevent the actual UV absorbers to enter into your skin. Hmm, okay. So it'll just lie at the surface rather than right. inside. Just some uh, advice for you if you're going to be in the sun. Put plenty of sunscreen on. And this was reported in Free Radical Biology and Medicine. All right, well, uh, another place you might want to apply that sunscreen is your breast. Breast? So that you avoid breast cancer. I worry about that all the time. <laughs> So researchers are uh, interested in a lot of therapies for treating cancers. Right. And one of the interesting ones is that some individuals actually have very strong immune cells, called T-cells, that are able to attack certain types of melanomas. Uh-huh. Researchers are trying to see if they can harness the killing capacity of these T-cells mm. to attack cancerous cells okay. by injecting them back into patients that don't have them. A group led by Steven Rosenberg's group at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, has tried this. They've extracted T-cells from individuals that don't have that component, 
use gene therapy to alter them so that they now have this cancer cell therapy component in them, inject them back in, mm-hmm. and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's been low success rate. About two of the 15 patients or so wound up actually having this sort of anti-cancer fighting ability. But they're suggesting that it's early stages, it's a proof of concept, uh-huh. technology will get better, and it, it shows that it's possible yeah, to do. Two out of 15 ain't bad, right? It's better than zero out of 15. It's a, it's a chance. So. <laughs> It's, it's interesting. The success rate is low, but according to researchers, say it's, uh, it's really good news for the field. And this was published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Dr. Robin Cook will join us to discuss concierge medicine. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, medical care in the United States is undergoing rapid change. A newly emergent phenomenon is concierge medicine, where patients pay a retainer fee for special care and services. But are such services ethical or beneficial to society at large? This issue serves as the backdrop for the new novel Crisis by Dr. Robin Cook. Dr. Cook is, of course, the noted physician and novelist who has penned over 20 novels covering a wide variety of medical topics. He joins us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss the many issues raised in his new book, Crisis. Dr. Cook, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. My pleasure. Most of your books, they have a lot of pretty heavy uh, medical uh, information in there. And being a doctor, do you know all this already, or do you have to do research? <laughs> some of these no, things? I have to do a lot of research, a lot more than people probably realize. For instance, one of the main characters in this book is Dr. Jack Stapleton, who's been in, I think, five or six of my other books, and he's a medical examiner. And unfortunately, when I was in medical school and took pathology, there were only two lectures in forensic pathology. And they occurred on a Saturday morning, and they told us that they weren't going to be on the exam. (laughs) So you can imagine how much attention we paid. So when I wanted to write about medical examiners, I had to actually take a course in forensic pathology and spend some time at medical examiner's office just so that I would really understand and feel the environment. When I take somebody in one of my books into some situation, I want them to be able to really visualize it and smell it and whatever and listen to it, etc. So, in fact, one book I wrote called Toxin, which deals with the E. coli problem in ground beef, I realized that I had never been to a slaughterhouse. I had never had any interest in going to a slaughterhouse either, but uh, I'd never been to one, and I realized that I really ought to go just so I understood what the situation was really like. And I must say that I was totally unprepared, even though I felt that I had seen quite a lot in my training, spending a week in a medical examiner's office and ER and all that kind of stuff. But I was totally unprepared, and it turned me into a vegetarian for quite a while. (laughs) I think that was my one and only visit, and I try every so often. I'm not a complete vegetarian, and if I have a little fillet or something like that, I really try not to remember too much about that episode. Well, uh, you described some equally gruesome stuff, for example, a body being exhumed. Did you actually have to go through that here? 
Yes, I did. I wanted to see exactly what that was like, and that was part of my background in forensic pathology. And I must say that one of my biggest handicaps in going through medical school was I do have a very acute sense of smell and felt that that was a a big handicap. And so it's one of those things that I have to struggle with and probably have been on times of having too many layers of masks on that I was having trouble breathing. (laughs) I really do like, I try to experience and see anything that I put in my books. And in crisis, very much at the end, there's a last scene is in Cuba. And uh, I have to apologize to my readers, however, is that I did not go to Cuba. It's probably the only place when I've taken people on one of my books to go to foreign places that I did not visit. I wrote a book once called Vital Signs that takes place towards the end in the outback of Australia and into the hinterland of China. And I did indeed go visit those specific places that I described. So when you write about uh, all these medical incidents, do you try and water it down a little bit, or do you keep as much of the medical terminology as possible? I actually give my readers uh, much more credit than I think than a lot of other people do, in that I know that they might not be able to pronounce some of the words, but if you put them and use them in the proper context, you can actually kind of figure out what it means uh, from the, the way the word is used. And I think it's important to actually use the language because it it lends uh, an air of credibility, which I think is important because in the end, I'm obviously trying to influence public opinion and therefore public policy. So I want to make sure the credibility is there. And when you make a mistake, sometimes it can uh, affect that. Remember way back in my first bestseller was called Coma. I made a mistake in that I didn't know that the tunnels in Boston going out to the airport there were two names. In other words, the tunnel out to the airport was one name, and the tunnel in from the airport was another name. So I did make that mistake, and it ended up getting probably 40 or 50 letters correcting me and and saying that obviously I didn't really know Boston very well. (laughs) So you have to be very careful. I think those in Boston are very proud of their city. Right. You do have a, a knack for trying to tackle controversial subjects. Do you try and anticipate subjects that might be controversial, or do you just try and find I do. Them? It started way back when I was a resident. I felt a little bit like Cassandra uh, in the sense that I sensed that everything about medicine was going to change. And my fellow residents, they just they looked at me and they said, well, what do you mean it's not going to change? And to me, it was very, very apparent that this locomotive was coming down the tracks, that medicine as it was known in the golden age was rapidly disappearing. And there was going to be a lot of change coming on. And we were going to have to probably find ourselves practicing in a far different environment than we envisioned when we went into medicine. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen since then? Well, I think the biggest change overall is the intrusion of business in medicine, mm. in that I know that you, you know to run a hospital, it has to be the business side, the hospitality side, et cetera, has to be taken into consideration. Uh, by the same token, people never thought of medicine or thought of going into medicine to become wealthy. They thought that doctors, after all the effort and money in terms of training, you would be adequately compensated and whatever. And during the golden age of medicine back in the 50s and and early 60s, I think that doctors generally were comfortable. Um, They might have a little bit better car and sort of clawing their way up into the upper middle class. But nobody was wealthy. 
And today, however, there are a lot of millionaires from various and sundry aspects of medicine. The problem with that, people say, well, that's business, and they made this contribution, etc. But, you know, that's all lumped into the cost of medical care. And when you say the cost of medical care in this country is 16% of our gross national product, how much of that money, how much of that 16% of our gross national product actually trickles down and actually pays for direct patient care? Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, a relatively small amount. And the fact that there are people who are becoming wealthy in terms of being millionaires from gobbling up hospitals and firing all the nurses, essentially, and restructuring and all that, and removing these millions and millions of dollars and having jets to fly around to visit them. All that money is coming away, is being taken away from patient care. And equally as uh, reprehensible, from my point of view, is those doctors who have found some sort of niche in which they then exploit and become essentially millionaires from that, because medicine shouldn't be a business. It's a calling. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what is medicine. And one of the problems is that for such a long period of time, everybody thought, well, medicine is a business, so we're going to let the market cause it to change and be become easy to manage. And every time you do that, it shows that medicine and the demand for medical care is not a commodity. It doesn't respond to the same supply and demand. Demand seems to be limitless. For instance, if you have a, a community and you have a surgeon who's doing his surgery, et cetera, et cetera, and you think, okay, let's, this is what the government actually thought. We have a surgeon. He's charging this amount of money to do his operations. Let's inject another surgeon. In other words, let's increase the output. And you put another surgeon in the community, and what happens? The price doesn't go down. In fact, what happens is the surgery doubles, and the price, if anything, goes up. So, I mean, here we are still, after all these years, we're still kind of hoping that the market, quote, market, is going to help rectify the chaotic state of medicine in the United States. It's not going to happen. Hmm. So, I mean, what's the solution? Should we move to a socialized system? Well, <laughs> we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have some sort of single-payer plan so that there, at least a certain amount of rationality can be injected hmm. into the system. We're the only ones. And yet... We pay twice as much per patient than even the second country, and yet on all the lists of our ways of measuring efficacy of health care, we're not at the top. We're way down in almost every single one of them. And so we're spending the most, and we're getting a product, ultimately, that's not as good as other countries. So we have to go to a single-payer plan of some form or fashion. I know it's been labeled socialized medicine, which means everybody's against because it's a bad word, but we have to do that. In the short run, what we have to do is we have to encourage primary care. This was talked about in the early 90s, and then what has happened? Nothing. In fact, we're choking off primary care now. We're paying it very small amount of money for what they do, and in fact, almost half of their day is not paid for at all because it's jobs patient-related that they have to do, but it's not directly in front of the patient or with the patient. And the way things are reimbursed today is the doctors are only reimbursed a flat, low rate for each time they see a patient, irrespective of what the patient's problems are, which is so counterintuitive. We pay all our other professionals by the hour. In other words, if you go to a lawyer and you have a complicated business situation and you're trying to do a will, it's very different than if you go in, I don't have any business, I have a salary here, or I'm on Social Security, I need a will. 
it's completely different. Well, that's not the way it works in medicine. If somebody walks into a primary care physician, he's got or she has all these problems, the primary care physician still only gets 50 some odd dollars, and that's not enough to cover the overhead and whatever. And so we're losing more and more primary care, which is one of the ideas of the book Crisis, because it's about concierge medicine, which is a reaction by some doctors trying to deal with the fact that they can't practice primary care under the present circumstance. So they kind of thought up this idea of why don't I charge admission to my practice? I'll tell people, I'll limit it to 400 people instead of the usual 3,000. And therefore, I can give them very, very close attention. I can be available all the time, et cetera, et cetera. I'll make house calls, patient office calls if that's necessary, whatever. I'll do all this. And it sounds great. But the problem is, is that we don't have enough primary care doctors to begin with. Mm -hmm. And if you take someone with a practice size of, say, 3,000, and this person reduces the practice to 400 to a concierge practice style, the other 2,600 people are sort of ushered out the back door And they're now trying to find another primary care physician. And in certain places, that's almost impossible now. You know, what's happened is is that if you look at our medical system, we're very top-heavy in terms of specialization. And why is that? Well, everybody's followed where the money is. Mm. And the way, for some reason, it's been always people who are willing to pay more money (laughs) to have a procedure. And the bigger the procedure, the more the money. And the more specialized, the more they can charge. And so we have a very top-heavy specialty procedure orientation in our health care. And we don't encourage primary care because that's where the money is. And students today are not going. Primary care residencies are not being filled because the writing's on the wall. There's, there's no money. These primary care doctors are having trouble keeping their, their doors open and the lights on, et cetera. Whereas if you go into a specialty like my specialty of ophthalmology, you can look out and there are a number of millionaires because they're doing these LASIK surgery or they're doing this or doing that. And in fact, they're out there beating the bushes trying to find patients in order to do more and more and more and more. And they're getting paid all this amount of money. And of course, some of that has been come down in the recent past to some degree. Medicare does realize over the years it has over paid in terms of specialties. So it is cutting it down a little bit. We have to cut it down a lot more. We have to switch that money to primary care. Let's have too many primary care doctors rather than too many specialists. We would be a lot better off in this country. And I bet we would move up in all those gauges of our health care monitoring or gauging where we are in terms of our health care. Do you think there can be anything uh, done for uh, encouraging medical students to pursue primary care? Short of increasing the prestige of primary care by Mm. paying it reasonably, I don't see any. It was for a while there in the 90s. It was ballyhooed and whatnot, and there was a there was a kind of a blip with people becoming interested in it. But then, when the reality of actually trying to practice it, you know, to keep the lights on, you've got to see so many patients per hour Mm. that you can't really practice medicine the way you're taught to practice medicine. And you can't have the doctor-patient relationship that you ought to have. And, you know, one other sign of the demise of primary care is the fact that you go into any of our suburban hospitals or city hospitals, any hospitals in the emergency room, they're jammed. And situation is, is that many, many of those patients don't even need or shouldn't be in the emergency room because they could be much better treated in an office environment with a primary care physician who knew them, and it would be far cheaper and it would be better medical care. 
emergency rooms are places that really should be for emergency. But now they're being jammed with people who, the people who are there think they have an emergency, and in some respects I suppose it is. But they should be in a doctor's office being treated by a doctor who knows them and knows the family. I know that insurance issues play a role here too, but one of the big ones is the fact that primary care really is not being encouraged the way it should be. Indeed, indeed. How did you become interested in this issue, and uh, maybe what's the next topic you might be writing? Well, one of my concerns about business in medicine, and this book, Crisis, was really born out of my interest in the continuing problem with medical malpractice, and in fact that we're in the third medical malpractice crisis, Mm -hmm. which is much worse than the first two. Most people don't realize that we've had kind of two medical malpractice crises prior to this one and just thought, well, it's always been a problem. Well, it has, but there's been these kind of upticks in terms of of finding coverage and paying for it. We're in the third one now, and this one's the worst because doctors are in a circumstance where they they can no longer just kind of pass it on, so to speak. Uh, They have to absorb it. And for those doctors like primary care physicians whose incomes have already been falling, finding now that malpractice premiums are going up, it's untenable to keep their business going. So that's really what crisis was really about. And the way I did that was by marrying law and medicine in the book. There's as much law in crisis as there is medicine. But this issue about business intrusion into medicine, I still feel very strongly about it. And so I've decided I'm going to write the next book, which is going to be really more similar in a sense. It will be the unfortunate marriage of medicine and business. Mm. Right. So it seems like the only people benefiting in medicine are the uh, businessmen and the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there are a number of doctors who have become mm. millionaires, mm. And, and I have trouble with that for mm. the same reasons that I mentioned earlier. I don't think that people should go into medicine to become millionaires, and that money really should be going towards patient care. If we, if we were taking care of everyone, and, and this country was on the top mm-hmm. of all those things to, that gauge whether we're doing good in medical care or not, then I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be complaining. I'm, I'm complaining is because we have 40 million people with no health insurance mm. who don't really get any real medical treatment whatsoever, and particularly where they don't get very much preventive treatment. They usually just go to the emergency room when they have a problem. That's not the way we should be practicing medicine in the 21st century, for sure. Well, I think it's a very important issue, and I hope a lot of people will go out and uh, take a look at your book, Crisis. Well, thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. Robin Cook discussing concierge medicine. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. game, the Grokatron 5000. Again, it's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic primary care service. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if you were running a primary care operation, would you take the following five people as your patient? Dr. Cook, you ready to play a game? Yes. Okay, here we go. Patient number one, Dr. J. Julie Serving. 
Well, I would be honored to have Julius uh, Irving as a patient. I happen to be a basketball player myself. I don't see any problem. Be uh, actually kind of fun. Number two, recently departed physician Dr. Atkins of the Atkins Diet. As a primary care doctor who is practicing concierge medicine in particular, one of the things that that the primary care doctor can do then with an adequate amount of time is really devote themselves towards wellness. And one of the big parts of wellness is nutrition counseling, which is something that doctors just haven't really had time to do and maybe even hadn't had the uh, appropriate training. But uh, having someone like that in the practice probably would be a plus. Uh, Number three, as a patient, the science fiction time traveler, Doctor Who. Well, since he's a time traveler, I think that might be a little problematic (laughs) because he could just dash into the future and see what I would have done better. (laughs) And so that would make me feel very uncomfortable. (laughs) All right. Well, um, all right. Famed humanitarian, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Well, absolutely. I've always had a kind of romantic uh, interest in Africa and having someone like that as a patient Part of the fun of medicine is that you really can form interesting bonds with your patients, and you have an opportunity to learn about them. And uh, I'm sure that he would have been a a marvelous individual to talk to, so he would be a a big plus. And finally, of course, our perennial favorite here on the show, the President of the United States, George Bush. I don't know about George Bush. (laughs) I I think that I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd want him in the practice. I think that he might not follow my recommendations. (laughs) He doesn't seem to take recommendations from anybody else. Uh, And that's one of the problems that you have. If you don't have a very good relationship with your patients, then the patients don't really follow your recommendations. And, uh, And that's actually a very important part of patient care. You know, when you decide with the patient that antibiotics, for instance, are appropriate, You expect the the patient to go home and take them the way that you have suggested. And it's amazing how many people don't do that. And, you know, you go home and you look in their medicine cabinet, and they've got all these bottles of medicines that they got from other illnesses, et cetera, which then they sometimes randomly take uh, if they think that some of the symptoms are somewhat similar to whatever it was before. So be my my fear that he might not be willing to follow orders. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Cook, I do want to thank you for sticking around and playing our game, the Grokatron 5000. Thank you. Your book. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Well, the surface of your face is a bit of a rocky place, though, isn't it? Because it's filled with colonoms, pimples, those whiteheads. So use that benzoyl peroxide to entrap them. And now for us with this week's question of the week. You know, down here in the south, we got some wonderful wildlife, but we also have beautiful mountains. But down here in the south, we got the longest cave in the world. If you know where it is or think you know where it is, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just get out of the tunnel. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.